literally just said, I'll give it, I'll give it, anyone who can touch the back, we'll give 20 quid. And that's all. <laughs> literally the first five minutes, I had 30 boys. And, and the only thing, because I wanted all of them to have a run and jump, run and jump, run and jump land. I wanted them to have a, quite a lot. The only thing I navigated was getting them through as quick as possible. Like, go, 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 go. So like, they're all running around in a circle, all trying to get this basketball hoop. And I knew deep down that none of them could reach it. So I knew I would be £20 out of pocket. But that within five minutes, they all must have done like three, no, sorry, 10 maximal effort jump and lands in a, in a very uh, variable environment. And then I was like, okay, this is great. It's worked. So the next session, the center, the center D uh, circle that goes in sort of the middle of a basketball court, I just said, oh, if anyone can run and clear it, I'll give you 20 quid. So all the kids are running and clear. Now we've got a standing long jump with acceleration, full acceleration transfer into a unilateral jump and a big landing. And a few of them got close, but still I wasn't. Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast. The podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with a platform to perform. I'm your host as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 44 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I spoke to youth strength and conditioning researcher, Ben Pullim. A self-confessed coach at heart, Ben's PhD has looked at how to optimise youth athletic development in secondary school children and the impact that physical competency has on psychological factors such as confidence, self-esteem and motivation. On today's podcast, myself and Ben discussed the difference between how assessments and strength and conditioning are delivered in traditional settings, such as academies, and strength and conditioning within the PE curriculum. We also discussed Ben's research into the relationship between physical competency with the fundamental movement skills and psychological factors. Finally, we spoke about the decision-making process that has influenced Ben in the design of his latest facility, the Youth Exercise Centre, which you can find in Portshead, Bristol. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll catch you again on the other side. Kick things off with the uh, same question I ask everyone. Um, why do you do what you do? God, it's a great question to start with. Um, so why do I do what I do? A few little things came together, really, in my career and my passions and my hobbies. Um, real simply, I've always been a bit obsessed with training, liked training for sports, um, even, I can remember from the age of 10 having a set of weights in my room and um, and just exploring uh, what the body could do, whether it was having gymnastics rings or uh, trying to learn a handstand or whatever it was I was trying to do. I've always been a little obsessed with that. So and I think I realized as I got a bit older, I, I actually preferred training over sport. Um, the second one, um, obviously, I did my undergraduate in strength and conditioning and was really, really lucky to be at Cardiff Metropolitan that has just some amazing youth SNC coaches and researchers. So that kind of starts to push you towards one certain way. And that was with uh, youth for me. And then I guess the final one was, well, two, well, a little joint thing was for me, I think my journey in sport um, wasn't a great one. Uh, just, well, it was, I, I absolutely love sport in school but like I was a bit of a late developer or um there was things I could have been better at if I felt like I had some quality coaching or I just feel that a lot of children should have access to these things and I don't think that quality 
SNC coaching or whatever it is, or just exploration games or whatever we're doing, shouldn't be exclusive to academy children. It should be there for everyone or for parents who want it for their children and, and children who can get access to it. I think it's, it's just trying to provide more people with that opportunity. And I, you know, I always, whenever I look at this youth SNC sphere, whenever I look at read a new paper or coach a new game, I'm always like, ah, oh, young Ben would have loved this. I would have loved this in school. And um, so I think that's probably why, uh, just the obsession with training um, and then my degree. And then obviously just I'm, the more I got into it, the more I realized I would have liked this um, as a child. And the final one really is, um, I feel when you coach children, you have, you have quite a big influence on their future. I feel, you know, elite athletes is such a great um, area to work with and very fulfilling. But I feel that as an SSC coach, I'm a very small part of what their narrative is. There's many much better elite performance SSC coaches than me and who will get these people to be medal winners. But as a youth coach, I feel like there's a bit more, you're pushing a child towards a, a road in their future, essentially. They're very malleable. You can have such a big influence and essentially start their love with training or exercise so I feel that's why I prefer coaching youth I guess yeah I love that and um I think well like one of my good friends he's uh, he's said to me openly that absolutely nothing wrong with this but he said he'd love to coach somebody to a gold medal and I think with a lot of elite athletes they're so good at their sport that you could have them doing whatever you want in strength and conditioning not to downplay the potential impact of it but they're going to be the best in the world because probably because they're the best at their sport. Yes, some sports might lean more heavily on the physical side, but the reality is to say that you were the reason they got the medal is, you know, we'll never know. We'll never know. Um, what I want to talk to you as well, just for people who are listening to this and not able to see the video, you have one of the best backdrops I think I've ever seen. Um, I'm very jealous. Um, but do you just want to talk about, uh, well, I suppose your training facility, describe to the listeners what's sitting in your background and the thought processes behind uh, basically what you've come up with, because it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, yeah, so this is my training facility for those who can see it and for those who can't see it. Um, I've opened a private training facility for children. It's designed for children, with children in mind. And I felt um, this kind of stemmed from my career I guess like I've obviously I've worked as an SSC coach I worked in more performance areas um, and then obviously I've worked in physical education as well in private schools and public schools and obviously been fortunate enough to do research in it as part of my PhD and I think um, I think during my PhD a few things really uh, one thing was delivering on physical education I was delivering to the masses the children who aren't sporty who don't have much opportunities and maybe in their demographic or other things like that and, and so that was one thing that kind of started to make me shift towards like okay how can how can we benefit these children that aren't super motivated because of their sport that they're trying to become professional at or anything like that um and then so that was one thing and then the other thing working in PE was I can remember delivering in some like some sports schools and stuff like that and I just always felt like we the only thing we really had in and a lot of public schools have this and it's no one's fault of their own it's pretty much just a sports hall maybe some basketball hoops and a couple of basketballs and um, that was really good because I learned a lot about my own coaching 
coaching in a very minimalistic environment with, I think I had some med balls and some resistance bands and then a big open space. And then I always felt that we could have done better for children. And, and it's not, there's just not enough money in the world for every school to have great facilities and stuff. And I just felt that I just wanted a place that I could build around my philosophy of trying to give children an opportunity to explore movement, to, to be happy and healthy and confident in what they're doing and just somewhere that was fun. So I'm a bit of a, uh, I really enjoy just messing around in training. I, I like climbing, I like swinging on bars, I like doing pull-ups then doing a bit of calisthenics or gymnastics or whatever it is. And I felt that, that I wanted to trickle that down and make an age-appropriate gym. So um my thought process when I made it was okay how can I make an environment that shapes children into being more athletic being stronger being more confident and falling in love with exercise so obviously this is one thing a lot of gyms are built in the UK for adults and um, social media and and uh is exploded and, and we live in an age where exercise is all about aesthetics or looking a certain way or diet culture and I feel like because of that, it's dripping down into youth. And I just wanted to build a facility that was completely separated from that and was for children and, and also just kind of a little training space for myself. <laughs> but um, yeah, just, just trying to build a space that I felt that I wasn't limited by where I've been limited previously, where like I didn't have enough space or I didn't quite have the equipment or I didn't have that stuff that created curiosity um so i yeah my training facility it's got artificial floor uh, grass so it's shoes off gym uh climbing wall down one side and monkey bars and a squat rack and climbing frame on the other i've got some gymnastics equipment some, and then some parallel bars as well and just just it's kind of like a hybrid of parkour gymnastics um climbing and obviously traditional snc and keeping it really big and open just so we can play lots of games and stuff like that and I mean, this is a very uh, niche uh, tick in my box, but I love the fact that you've got um, AstroTurf because um, something that I'm a big fan of is crawling variations, calisthenics variations. But if you've got a floor, for example, as I did um, when I was in one of the private schools, we kitted out a lovely gym, um, or what I thought was lovely. Um, but if you're doing any work with your hands on the floor, it's like, oh, but the floor's dirty. And like, you know, this, it was just a lovely black um, spongy floor, if you will. But you can't, you're already putting kids off of that environment. And if we talk about affordances for action, they're already uh, not, uh, not best pleased with that. So I love the fact that immediately I'm looking at your gym and thinking, oh, I'd love to have a play on the rings. I'd love to have a go on the climbing, um, the climbing wall. So I think you've done fantastic. Yeah, I think the, the, the other thing is... Um... I'm a big advocate of barefoot training. There's conflicting research with some really good stuff, some longitudinal stuff coming out in children that's like showing the benefits on sprint speed, jump performance. So if they can come in here and run around and jump and land and reconnect with the earth for an hour a week or whatever it is, however long, then, you know, we can start to have a bit more of an influence. I mean, if you only take shoes off for an hour every six months to run around there's not much of an influence on that so that's part of my philosophy and a lot of the kids I coach um especially more in physical education had a lot of postural problems you see a lot of flat feet collapsed arches and stuff like that so that was a big one and the artificial floor it's 
a little bit spongy as well. It's a bit takes a bit of the force out of your landings and stuff like that. So it's, it, has, it served a few purposes really for me and getting that started, I guess. Yeah, and it reminds me of a point from a, a previous podcast I've done um, where a chap had invented basically these goalkeeper gloves, but they're non-stick. So basically um, there's no grip on them. And his rationale was if I've got a product or a facility or whatever that you can use and automatically improves you just by doing what you otherwise would have done anyway, a bit like your gym where people are barefoot, they're going to be, you know, presumably squatting, lunging, landing, etc. It's sort of like a, well, it's a massive win. Yeah, completely. It's, it's the constraints led approach is, as you talked about there, I guess, with, with the goalkeeper gloves example is something that's been um, massive in my PhD. It's something I've really bought into and absolutely loved. I think if we can constrain an environment to promote learning and limit the language that we're using, obviously cues and analogies, et cetera, are vital, but because they act as constraints on the mind as well, but just, just doing as, mo- as much as you can with the environment as little as, as you can as a coach. Uh, it seems a bit backwards, but that's kind of how I coach, I guess. And I like to stay, take a step back and let the kids almost coach themselves. But obviously it doesn't mean that it's just chaos for an hour, but um, yeah, I'm really, really big on the constraints led approach. And in terms of chaos, I mean, I remember uh, you probably come across him, uh, Simon Brundish, uh, Strength Lab Superheroes. I remember chatting to him at a conference once and he was talking about when you first introduce kids to the gym and I don't know, they're climbing on the squat racks or whatever. And he said a lot of times the strength conditioning coaches were thinking, no, get down or, you know, don't do that. And it's like, I'd love them for them, for them to be doing that. So uh, my question to you is, when I listened to your podcast with Craig Harrison, you said, you said something along the lines of you'll let them have the first few minutes as exploring the space or maybe, for example, bringing out the equipment and playing with it. Um, so the first part of the question is, I suppose, how do you frame that in terms of your expectations? And the second part is, how do you transition? So let's say you give them that free play. How do you then transition from, okay, guys, we've enjoyed that, but for this minute or two, I just need you to listen really quickly. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the, the first part, it can completely vary. It will depend how I've set the class up. What um, The big one is like, if I have the air track out, which is sort of a bouncy gymnastics floor, um children cannot resist they they want to jump on that thing straight away and i don't want to stop that because that's almost uh controlling behaviors and i want to be autonomy supportive as i can but still maintaining maintaining control so the big one like obviously whatever it is if they want to climb on the wall etc or explore something that's slightly different that to the environment if i've set something up slightly different i'll let them explore it and become because it allows them to become a bit more familiar with something before i throw in any like constraints or coaching or this is how we're going to do it they can just go oh this is what this feels like this is how i can navigate myself with that bit of equipment and then the second part of the question is how i control that is um quite a good question i've never been asked it and i didn't even realize what tactic i use until you asked me that question but a lot of with the younger kids, it's all about trust. So I'll say to the children, you can play on any of the equipment you want if you're there's a bit of a balanced relationship. So it's, okay, you can come in and play on stuff, but you always have to ask my permission first. And that way, they always ask my permission 95% of the time. I'll say, yeah, jump on, like, for the first five minutes, let's just do what you need to do. 
And then by having that, when we then strip back and, and we might even do the 20% of the session where we're doing a bit more structured stuff for the younger people where it's, and that's when they might ask us, say, no, just for this session, like this section of the session, I just need you to work hard for me. And then, and if they've asked for something while we were doing that, I say, okay, if you work hard for me in this part, you can then explore that piece of equipment. So it's all about trust, really. It's just, they always, uh, it takes a few sessions, but then there's this thing where children come in and go, oh, Ben, can I go on this bit, bit of equipment? I absolutely go on it. And, and I always say like, as long as I can trust you do things safely, then I'm always happy for you to do things. And and obviously if they ask me something ridiculous, like I do a backflip off the bars, I say no. Safety is first, obviously, but children are quite resilient and I tend to know what what's safe or not. Or I'll get the crash mats out and put it underneath so it's all good. But that's, yeah, that's ten, tends to be how I navigate that stuff. I like that because uh, I've had it before where, I don't know, I'm delivering a session and, I don't know, someone starts cartwheeling and you're like, well, that wasn't on the agenda and you're like well I don't want to take away from your sort of expression of movement but then equally if every all 30 of you start cartwheeling and you know you're not looking where you're going then you're like well then that's on me and you're like right I've got to tread this line carefully between like you said not turning into one of the coaches who's like no you must do it exactly like this but also as much as I hate to say it, health and safety cap on and if anyone gets kicked in the face I'm ultimately responsible yeah, there's always, uh, when you're uh, coaching kids, there's always a health and safety cap on. That's always at the forefront of mind. But yeah, you want children to kind of know what their barrier is as well. That's what that's what drives competence, really. That's um, As a child, I always used to jump. I don't know, I used to just like jumping off walls and out of trees and stuff. And I knew what my limit would be. I knew my affordances. I knew I, I won't be able to, I will crumple or whatever. Whatever a child thinks that would sound like. But but if we don't give those opportunities, then their, their perceived competence is going to be a lot smaller, right? They're not going to know that they can do these things if we don't give them the opportunity to. And obviously with the social media age and Xbox TV, everything, and those affordances are slowly getting smaller and less active. So it might drive competence down in some ways. And we sort of transition a little bit because a big theme that I'm keen to dig into with uh, today's podcast is strength and conditioning and how that might look different in different environments even if kids are of the same age um so you've uh, similar to myself you've delivered in private schools you've delivered in public schools um so firstly do you want to talk about to the listeners who either have only coached in one of those environments what some of your key reflections have been from uh, doing so um yeah so let's say make the example we've we've got that across the board they're all the same age um if it's in an academy environment they're there for a reason they're there to we're there to make the boat go faster we still have the long-term athlete development in mind but we are we are there to serve a purpose of making this child a better athlete but also developing athleticism an age-appropriate way at time and way essentially so Obviously, you have to do a job in that environment. That's why you're employed or that's what you need to do for the academy. And academies still have flexibility. They're not all about like it's professional rugby, etc. Like further, for, uh, further down in the lower ages, they know what they're doing. Um, so like that's what SNC looks like in academies. Uh, in private schools, you have a bit of both. So it's not an academy or elite sport where you do have a few elite athletes. But say in a private school, you have 
high performance sports. So like schoolboy rugby, the netball, the hockey, first teams, they're, they're really big part of school uh, culture. And then, so SNC is there to facilitate it, but you also get a slight wider lens because some of them are multi-sport or some of them, you know, aren't going to go into professional sport. They've already got an offer at university or they want to be a doctor or they want to be this, that or the other. And you know, sports is something they do and enjoy. So it changes the uh, narrative of that a little bit and the, the certain agendas that you kind of have to abide to. And then in, in some um, private schools, you obviously have integration into physical education. So that's when it becomes the masses, right? And that's where that's the big leap frog, uh, the big change, sorry, in um, what SSC looks like. Because a few things, one, motivation levels are completely different. You have the children who do not care about sport, physical education or exercise or physical activity, which is, it's not for them. It's not for them. That's not their fault. We, d we don't have to force physical activity on people. We know the health benefits, but if they like, um, if they're super intelligent on a laptop or they love computer science and stuff like that, I'm not going <laughs> to drag them into a gym and say, come lift weights or whatever. But um, that's where it changes. So where it becomes for everyone, then your coaching style completely changes. Obviously, um, physical education, there isn't sort of a direct agenda of, of sports performance. So you have a lot more flexibility in what you can do, make the games and challenges. But generally, your aims are to improve movement competency, improve strength levels and uh, give them the skills to participate in life lifelong activity. Um, it's strange because physical education, as I know it in, in currently in schools, not so much in the private schools, the private schools aren't regulated by the same people that are regulating the public schools, but um, private schools, uh, sorry, public schools aim is to create lifelong participation in the sport and and to develop skills for sport but obviously children don't carry on playing sport into adulthood not many anyway so i kind of feel like that's where we we're going a little bit wrong in physical education where it should actually be lifelong physical activity and 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 that's why we need maybe a little less sport in physical education and a bit more snc but to go back to where i was yeah the private schools obviously movement skills strength um, all that sort of stuff and then you go into public school and things change a little bit because naturally um, you know myself or I, you've had that experience as well um, I was there through research um, so the private schools obviously employ someone to be the SSC coach but in public schools there's a very only a handful a pocket full of um, of these schools that actually have SSC coaches so it's going to be different whether it's someone coming in externally or whether it's the PE teacher being upskilled. Um, but it looks completely different because the private schools have the facilities, much smaller classes sizes. Sometimes they have two or three grads to each PE lesson. So like everything's changing in terms of that. Um, and then uh, they tend to have more opportunities. They go on more school trips, um, stuff like that. These things make them a bit more physically active. Um, and then the public schools, obviously, like I said, the SNC is different because it's not actually an employed SNC coach. It might be a bit different. So, and then the demographics completely different. Um, if so there's some great public schools as well, um, I've definitely had a nice range. Um, and then the, the lower socioeconomic status or 
the slightly more difficult demographic to work in. Um, you have a it's completely different environment again from everything else. Uh, you have behavioural issues, large classes. Sometimes you don't have any support in teachers. Those are just some of the issues I've faced delivering that stuff. So um, those are kind of I guess that's the landscape of youth S and C um, and how it slightly varies between the private schools and the public schools. And you had a great quote. I think it's from uh, your podcast with Rob Anderson and uh, Athletic Evolution. You talk about detaching strength and conditioning from sport um, and also that, for example, when you're delivering, for example, what you might consider strength and conditioning within the state school or a public school, that you've not got the carrot like an academy might have in the sense of even if the academy players, I don't know, don't like strength and conditioning or don't want to do it, if they perceive that this is their way to the first team, then they might knuckle down and think, right, well, got to get on with it. Um, you also talk about the um, misrepresentation of trying to scale what private school strength conditioning might look like and then basically drag and drop that into a, a public school. Uh, do you just want to chat a little bit about uh, why you think that is? Yeah, so this is an attack on private school SNC coaches at all because I, that was my first job. And the reason I can talk about this is because I've made that mistake. I've tried to take stuff that I did in physical education in private schools and I couldn't have really gone to a further end of the scale because the last school I worked with before I started my research was a really good private school. And then I went to probably the, the I don't want to say the worst, but it was the most difficult for me because I was fresh to it. So partly it was a reflection on my own coaching ability, why I found it harder because I hadn't had much exposure in public schools or in, in lower socioeconomic status. But also, yeah, I was from one end of the scale to the other. I think in this school, in some areas around it, sort of 60% child poverty, which is like the highest rate in Wales. Um, and trying to recreate what we do in private schools and drop it in there, it doesn't work. Um, and I'm sure there's probably a, some coaches out there and, and some schools where they probably can do it. Like I'm, I, I tried never to use blanket statements because the biggest thing I've taken about school coaching is every school is different. The demographic, the attitudes, the cultures, the teachers, the, the pupils, it's all completely different. No school is the same. They're all unique. And one school might actually respond better to another coach much better than my own coaching or a different school. Actually, my style of coaching, that's the kids kind of conform a bit better and, and enjoy it. But I think at the moment, we so all the youth SNC coaches were singing from the same hymn sheet, hymn sheet that we want SNC in schools for children and we know why we can improve their abilities, make them stronger, the health benefits, the, the, the self confidence, self esteem, all those loads of different benefits to strength training. But all the SNC, well, 95%, there's exceptions again, always exceptions, but 95% of SNC coaches are in the private sector. I would say there's only a hand, I can know, I, there's a few I can think of in the top that actually have an employed SNC coach. A few are now sort of doing a merge role between PE and SNC, getting those merge roles, but everyone is in the private sector. And what we're trying to recreate in the public school, I've seen it firsthand, it doesn't work. And it, and I've got it wrong. I've hold my hands up. Um, I've got it wrong a few times. And I think the important thing for me was I reflected on that. And, and that's what changed my style of coaching. And 
I guess, pushed me towards this path of how my facilities ended up as well. And it's completely different to how I would have built it if I'd done it sort of post Marlborough when I was at that private school. It's completely different, I guess. Yeah, and I hope I'm not uh, putting words in your mouth because I'm pretty sure this was uh, notes I jotted down from a previous podcast of yours, but this really stuck with me. You were talking about, um, for example, delivering acceleration mechanics in, say, a private school as part of a speed session. But then, for example, you might work with kids in a state school. Why would you be talking about acceleration mechanics if this is literally the only physical activity that they're going to do in their week? Yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah, I can kind of remember that conversation now. It's it was something I thought about. You know, we we it, as SSC coaches, we we know what we want to teach children. It's universal. There's some great SSC coaches out there. We know we want acceleration, deceleration, re-acceleration, the athletic motor skill competency model by um, Roger Lloyd from the 2015 paper. And that, that's done the rounds. Everyone's aware of it. You know, push and pull, lower body, upper body, bilateral, unilateral, all those sort of little categories. And we're following it and it's really positive. That's my thesis was based on. But then I think when we go into, um, yeah, public schools, it's kind of then choosing how we deliver that or more so how we interpret that so if we uh yeah like you said if we're going to a school that no one's really playing sport this is the only physical activity they're doing i just don't my personally my opinion is i don't see why we would be delivering sprint mechanics i just don't see where that fits in we might do some games that require children to accelerate and i think a lot of coaches are already on to that they they know this stuff um, and and but I think it does completely change and then it goes like what skills do these kids actually need and it's being able to build self-confidence to empower them and and to become stronger versions of themselves through fun engaging activities whereas in other environments it's slightly different I guess it's it's more so you can get them under a barbell or you can do this etc but you you really struggle with that due to facility restrictions and, and the demographic and yeah when when we're talking bottom line real general public no sports involved stuff like that then I think we do need to have a bit of a shake-up in how we're delivering stuff yeah and I'm always interested and again I don't profess to have uh, the answers myself but I think it's very easy for us as strength and conditioning coaches to say for example um, sport shouldn't be where physical education starts but then I'll say to somebody, okay, right, walk me through what a lesson looks like. The kids arrive, 30 kids, it's just you, limited equipment, what are you going to do? And again, I don't profess to have the answers to that question myself. I've got a few things that I might try or a few things that I have been trying. But I think it's too easy to say, oh, no, we need to build those fundamental movement skills so they can play sport. When actually, if the kid isn't sport or has no sporting interest... Are we literally giving them or trying to put a square peg in a round hole? Yeah. So I'll give I'll give a tiny little example to sort of do provide a bit of an example on a, a real bottom level way that I did something in one lesson. So I don't really like sitting around waiting for all the kids to come out of the changing room and then do it, taking a register and starting the session because one child might be sat there for 10 minutes. You know, you get the keen children, get changed really quick, they're out, it's ready to start lesson. You, and you, you have them sat down for like 10 minutes. I've never been part of, like big on that. I'm not really a fan. 
So I can remember one lesson. So obviously one of my tests, uh, I'll give a bit of an explanation. So one of my measures in, in my two interventional studies that I, uh, and a cross-sectional study that I did in, in my PhD was investigating standing long jump performance. It was just an easy measure to investigate their like strength and power in children in school because you don't need much testing equipment to take measure in a person. So obviously I need to, to improve those things. I probably need an intervention to involve jumping and landing in a lot of forms. So I can remember at the start of a PE lesson saying to you, I was like, how can I get these kids to do a couple of jumps without having to coach them? I'm like, right, there's a basketball hoop. And I literally just said, I'll give it, I'll give it, anyone who can touch a basketball hoop 20 quid. And that's all, <laughs> literally the first five minutes I had 30 boys. And, and the only thing, because I wanted all of them to have a run and jump, run and jump, run and jump land. I wanted them to have a, quite a lot. The only thing I navigated was getting them through as quick as possible. Like, go, 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 go. So like, they're all running around in a circle, all trying to get this basketball hoop. And I knew deep down that none of them could reach it. So I knew I would be 20 pounds out of pocket. But that, within five minutes, they all must have done like three, no, sorry, 10 maximal effort jump and lands in a, in a very uh, variable environment. And then I said, like, okay, this is great. It's worked. So the next session, the center, the center D uh, circle that goes in sort of the middle of a basketball court. I just said, oh, if anyone can run and clear it, I'll give you 20 quid. So all the kids are running and clear. Now we've got a standing long jump with acceleration, full acceleration transfer into a unilateral jump and a big landing. And a few of them got close, but still I wasn't 20 pounds out of pocket, but I've just got them to do max acceleration, uh, some large plyometrics and big jumps uh, transferring limbs, etc., And it was just really basically just saying, I'll give you 20 quid if you can clear it, which is just, just, and it was an easy win because the PE teacher would be with me. Like, I know exactly what you're doing. And we're just like, yeah, we'll just, just let it roll because they're enjoying themselves. And I'm getting, I'm getting physical qualities that I want. That's what I want. I want them to be improving. I want them to accelerate, jump and land, but I'm not going to teach them the mechanics in this environment. I just want them to be exposed to it. I think, Move, uh, Craig Harrison, the first time I ever met him, he said something that really resonated with me. He said, move more, then move better. And I think we sometimes get hung up on just the move better side of things and we forget about the move more. So I guess that's kind of where that comes from for me. Yeah, all we as strength and conditioning coaches, we almost get things muddled the other way around. And we're like, oh no, you got to move well. And then when we move well, you'll be physically competent to move better. And it's like um, something again that I've learn from you and we'll dive into in a few minutes but is especially with kids who aren't in a sort of quote-unquote strength and conditioning setting is actually is different move, movement exposure more important than I suppose what you would call your traditional right three sets of six this week three sets of eight next week or whatever yeah exposure is massive um physical activity does have a big impact on physical performance and um, physical activity I, I really hope i'm getting this right because i read a paper on it not too long ago so they looked at different sports participations and looked at its relationship to the functional movement screen um now i believe there's better screens out there that you can use but i it served a purpose for them um and they investigated sports participation. I think the only sport, please, I hope I get this right, but sorry to the authors if I can't remember this properly, but the only sport that was correlated to movement competency through participation was dance. So children, girls more predominantly, but also boys who 
dance. Um, we're doing dance classes, etc. in a young age. I can't remember the ages either. I think it was about pre-adolescence, circa adolescence. Um, those uh, who were doing dance were more move, had high levels of movement competency in the functional movement screen. No other sport or activity displayed that. Um, and then I also think there was sort of a cutoff. Oh, please, I really hope I'm right, but there was sort of like lower levels of lower physical activity did have an impact, but then there's a ceiling effect. So it kind of points towards the move more than move better. I'd be, um, again, uh... If, if you find that on your uh, hard drive, I'd be keen to uh, pop that in the show notes and have a read myself. And um, it's interesting because yeah. it makes me think about, and this is something I get torn about in terms of my own thinking in the sense of when people and myself included, I'm sure I've probably said it, but about separating sport from physical education. And the thing is the sport could easily be the vehicle to physically educate the child if done well. And if, um, Shall we say we're not assuming that football has to be 11 v 11 with the ball on the floor. Um, and I think it's Kelly, Kelly Starrett, who on one of his podcasts, he talks about sports, which are movement practices and sports that will enhance movement competency. And he said that's why he likes, for example, yoga, dance, gymnastics, uh, even mixed martial arts, because he's like, you can't not become physically more competent to get better at these sports. Whereas, and again, we'll jump into your some of your findings, but I found that kids who are quote unquote better at football, you'll then do some single leg stuff in the warm up, and they're terrible. Even though as a school, we might be like, oh yeah, let's pick him for football. And then maybe because he's a better athlete, just because he's somehow better at football, maybe we put him in cross country. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about one of your studies which looked at psychological um a psychological framework alongside the physical competency because i think it's easy for us to strength and conditioning coaches think oh well if we move better we'll improve their confidence and it sounds like it makes sense but your study showed that that might not necessarily be the case yeah so i'm going to quickly bounce off the first part of your question there and where you said um, you spoke on a podcast and previously there was the children that were doing dance, gymnastics, uh, yoga, mixed martial arts tended to be better movers. And there's, there's a, re, a good rationale for that. So movement competency is hugely underpinned by strength. So there's a study out there that was done a couple of years ago in school kids and the offer Z score, I believe, children that were sort of in the lower bracket Z score on a isometric mid-thigh pool. Um, uh, so put in, they were the, sort of the weakest in the, in the cohort were eight times more like, nearly eight times more likely to be less competent. So in the lower range of movement competency as well. So we, we have the evidence in school children that um, strength is massively correlated and, and associated to movement competency. And there's other papers, that's just one example. There's a lot of papers really supporting this. So when we go back to those sports, your, your gymnastics, your, um, your mixed martial arts, your, your yoga, your dance, all those things. So sports are hugely underpinned by stabilizing movements, the ability to stabilize on one leg, the ability to hold their own body weight, especially gymnastics and dance. Like they're all underpinned by stabilization. And if we're getting lots of stabilization exposure, we're gonna get some improvements in strength that 
equates to improvements in movement competency. And also they're just better, slightly better movers because of the proprioceptive and coordinative exposures they've got as well. They've, they've had to learn how their body moves in space a bit more. Whereas we look at the traditional football um, underpinned more by locomotor and, and manipulative skills. There's not as much of that exposure to lots of stabilization. That's, I'd love to actually research that question because this is a bit, this is more of a statement for anyone listening. I can't fully say that's true, but that's the way I see it. That's how I, how I believe that's occurring. Um, and then you're going to have to remind me what the second part of your question was. I was enjoying listening to you talk too much. I was already thinking about, uh, from a research base, if you were to redesign the, the curriculum, you could almost say, as an example, I don't know, year seven, right, we're going to do dance, yoga, gymnastics, climbing, and then eventually, I mean, there'd be uproar from parents about no football being in the curriculum till year nine. Um, but yeah, that's just where my thinking was going. Let me try and see if I can uh, try and see if I can well, remember. Off the off the back of that as well. So my I've got a cross-sectional study where I've got the data collected, but I haven't written the study in. And one of the metrics that I collected was sports participation. Mm -hmm. So I got the children just to write down what sports they did out, outside of physical education. And then I'm probably going to look. I don't know if this will be the, the way the paper ends up, because um, but I would like to explore categorizing more locomotive-based, more manipulative-based, and more stabilizing-based, and then looking at that correlation to their jump performance and their movement competency. So I might have an answer for you. But... I want to explore it, but also like understanding research is self-reported sports participation from children at like 11, 12 years old probably isn't as accurate as we'd like it to be. Mm -hmm. So a child saying, oh, they do this, this and this, it might have been they kicked a football against a garage wall once, or so I, I didn't regulate that. I just, I was one man <laughs> doing, doing a job. I, I, there was just so much data. You have to pick what you're going for. And that was just a small question I asked in one of my surveys. But I'd love to see if I could answer that. My hunch is I probably wouldn't find any significance just because the way it was reported. But if I do, I'll definitely give you a shout. Um, so, yeah, just while that was in my head, I thought I'd go off that. I've, I've remembered what the question was, but we'll come back to that in a second. Uh, just because I'm intrigued as to, and sounds awful, but I always think, right, if I ever have kids in the future, what sports or what ages, you know, because we talk about multiple sport exposure, what types mm -hmm. of things would we do? Do you have any thoughts about, you mentioned about sports which are more locomotive-based, sports which are more sta stability-based. Um, do you have or any thoughts in terms of how you would have to go about categorizing those because i know for example we could say anecdotally that gymnastics obviously involves more stabilization than i don't know football um mm -hmm. but i just wondered if from a research perspective you'd need some kind of measure to say oh here's why it involves more stabilization or even if you were to rank sports say oh this one requires the most stabilization i don't know swimming or whatever requires the least any thoughts on that um, this is why it's a quite a speculative uh, thing that I want to look into because um, I'll, I'm almost there in terms of I'll probably start analysing that data sort of next month. Um, but it is one of those like you could chop and change it. It could be just their predominance. So we just go, what, what is the predominant factor? Or we could rank the three sort of um, fundamental movement skills and have them ranked. But 
I think it'd be more of a predominant thing. So like, although we have, I, it almost, I almost wouldn't have manipulative in there. It'd probably be more locomotive and stabilizing mm. because we look at football and we look at how much a child runs in a game or, or an adult runs in a game and the strides they take and the accelerations or decelerations, change of direction, I probably imagine outweighs massively over the amount of times they kick the ball. I could be wrong. I'm, I don't know football very well, so, but I, I imagine it being more locomotive based, even though it is a, the predominant skill is the ability to kick the ball. But I think that's how, it, in my mind, I'd categorise it just of a rough estimate of what I think I might do. Yeah, I, I can just imagine, I don't know, experts in whatever sport it might happen to be, seeing this list of sports ranked and being like, oh, you've got no idea, actually, this sport involves loads of civility, and you're like, all right, I'm just, just, trying, to, just trying to get a study done. Yeah. Um, the question was um, in relation to uh, the relationship between physical competency and uh, psychological factors such as self-esteem. Yes, yes. Um, so... That cross section, sorry, that cross sectional um, study will give us a bit more idea on a larger cohort, sort of just a, a snapshot of where competency is in terms of and and it's sorry the psychological factors, sort of motivation to exercise, self esteem, physical self efficacy, so physical is confidence towards a physical task essentially. I'll have a bit more information on how they correlated to the movement competency screen, which I used, which was overhead squat, um, lunge, uh, brace with a uh, shoulder tap and press up. So that's the athlete introductory movement screen, um, which is a fantastic screen. It needs to be out there a bit more. I've apparently got a paper coming out reviewing screens. And after the review that that came out on top for me, um, in terms, of, sorry, also in used, terms of um, what kind of things were you looking at when you say it came out on? Yes. Top? So I'll try finish this question and then sorry. I'll go to that one. But no, no, don't apologise. I'm just going to lose my train of thought. I'm really bad with it. So the in terms of the movement competency stuff, um, psychological attributes. In terms, of, if we looked at an intervention study. Um, there's a lag effect, okay, in psychological contracts, especially like physical self-efficacy, like confidence towards a given task, because a lot of stuff SNC or these movements SNC coaches give to children, these movements are very uh, alien to children. They haven't been exposed to them before. So what we believe is if we deliver a short-term intervention and improve their movement, is that the way they perceive themselves will improve. But it doesn't actually happen that way. It's not linear. So... In both my interventions, um, I, I improved uh, their movement competency. The second intervention had a much larger effect size um, just because I had a uh, longer duration, more sessions. And what we see is that it doesn't directly correlate to improve uh, perceived competency, uh, sorry, physical self-efficacy. And part of the reason is, like I said, there's almost a dip when you first introduce these kids to these movements, they think, oh, I'm going to be really good at this. And then you introduce it and then you give them coaching and feedback and they start to realize actually this is alien. I'm not not as good as I thought I was. And then it, once you get past that delayed effect, it might take longer before you actually see that positive increase, which kind of just gives a bit more rationale to why you should do more longer in term interventions to try have an Im improvement on self-esteem, self-efficacy, um, 
on more of the psychological constructs. And that's understandable. Movement competency is very easy to improve. In, not very easy, but you can improve it in children in four weeks. We've seen studies improve in four weeks, but psychological constructs are much harder to change. I say they're more stable within a person, uh, within a child. They're, they're, they're much more stable, but then I'm going to contradict myself and say they're also highly unstable in adolescence. So it could, obviously there's so many things going on, such big changes in growth rates and self-perceptions, but, but generally how children view themselves is quite stable. Um, but again, there's probably some child psychologists who can explain this much better than I can. But um, that's kind of how the, the psychosocial element ties in with the movement competency stuff. And then just talking about your other question, how I talked about aims, the athlete introductory movement screen and why that movement screen I believe was very good. So I used a, like, I, it's difficult because I don't want to say that some screens aren't that great, but yeah. at the same time, I've used screens and had limitations and these screens were made for youth populations. Um, so I've, in, in a review I've written that hopefully I can get out and published, I investigated, I think it's about nine movement screens that are out there that the inclusion criteria was they had athletic motor skill competencies in. Um, another inclusion criteria is they had demonstrated reliability studies in children. Um, and then once they had those two things, so the athletic motor skills and reliability, I then investigated what they, how they were used. So I looked at a few things. So whether a screen uh, uses segmental ana analysis or whole body analysis, so whether it zooms in on specific parts of the body or whether it uses the whole body so the functional movement screen I, I made the little comment earlier that I, I didn't think it was the best for children that uses a whole body approach to assessing movement competency uh, sorry to assessing the, the movements in its screen so when it uses a whole body approach it doesn't tell a practitioner potentially where the deficit occurred um, I hope I'm reciting this because I haven't <laughs> gone through that paper in a while but it doesn't really demonstrate where that deficit occurred so one of them is whole body or segmental most of the movement screens out there use segmental i think functional movement screen and one other uh one that's not as famous as the functional movement screen only use whole body and then the other thing i looked at was um where how they assess so did they pick do they just perform the exercise once and then grade do they perform the exercise? So I use the functional movement screen again. It's, it's really famous, right? Functional movement screen. A lot of people know it and the FMS. Um, so what that, I hope I've interpreted this right, it does up to three repetitions. If someone performs it competently on the first repetition, you stop the test. And then they've got up to three repetitions. Well, for me, that creates ambiguity because if, if it's not the first rep and you stop it or the third, already there has to become a decision by the practitioner that's using it. And that creates, um, I think that affects the reliability. And then the other thing as well was um, it also only uses sort of the best repetition technique. So it only grades one repetition. So what we know in children is children have... Uh, the prefrontal cortex is immature. It's not fully matured. So movement variability is much, there's a lot, sorry, a lot higher levels of movement variability. 
So I want to assess children. To, for me to have a better understanding of movement competency, I think you should assess off, across multiple repetitions and not just the one. So some of the screens I identified used the best repetition technique. Some did the best repetition technique off two sets. But those are where I think there's a little limitation because you'll see it all the time. Children are performing the best squat in the world. And in the second rep, it's just completely alien. It's nothing like the first one. And if you only use the best repetition, you don't look at how consistently they can perform a movement and consistency is a big part of movement competency. So those, those are the things within the screens. And why AIM stood out for me out of the eight or nine screens was it used, it scored not only segmental analysis, so you know where the issue is. So if you're trying to use synergistic programming, identify individual problems, that is great for that. It was really easy to administer minimal equipment. It um, assessed um, multiple repetitions using multiple criteria. So it would assess four repetitions across four criteria for an exercise. So one of the, and, and by assessing multiple repetitions, it had much higher sensitivity for me when I used it in just uh, looking at discrepancies between competency or whether someone's improved because a child might perform a movement exactly the same uh, at the start of the intervention for one repetition and then it's still the exact same movement but they can now perform it correctly for four repetitions and that was the only movement screen that could identify that for me um, and it, that's why it's so good. Uh, Simon Rogers created it, part of the AIS in Australia um it's really really good movement screen um so i think hopefully i've explained that well it's, it's um but i think movement screening needs a bit of an evaluation in youth because we're not really looking at the consistency and that's why we need to because obviously variability is much higher especially in prepubescent children what's your thoughts on um how the instructions are delivered for movement screens. So for example, I know uh, if I remember rightly and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the FMS doesn't allow you to coach the athlete through the movement. They just read the instructions, however the athlete interprets it. But then I know other practitioners or critics, critics of the FMS will say, well, if they can improve with coaching, then how do you know it's a mobility-based problem if they can improve with coaching. So what's your, I suppose, your general opinion on the quality of instructions delivered and whether a demonstration is provided uh, within a movement screen? So I think FMS have got that right and it's pretty consistent across a lot of the screens, a lot of them. So I always say you should just get them, if you can, my interpretation and, and it was similar for the aims as well and what I used in research was, explain how a child should be in the start position because if, <laughs> if, if they're not like feet together and stood on a spot then what are we measuring so just just give them the tools that they can get into a start position and then um also just like the bottom position or the end position so like where they start and finish but there's no coaching in between and what it'll be is to standardize it, I will always use the same language for every child, for, for everyone that was being screened, for how I would say to get into that start position and then how to finish. And I, and I wouldn't answer any questions regarding how to improve their confidence. If they're like, oh, like, do I need my knees out or something like that? I wouldn't answer that. 
And the thing is, like, obviously we say, oh, you know, if we do that, but then you can coach them. Is it a mobility restriction or is it a control restriction? And I think the answer is, it's like, well, it, yeah, it's kind of both. Like, we understand that. The, 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 the question we're asking is, do you want to understand how much something influences someone? So, like, in research, we need to know where they were, A, and then how they finished at B. So we have to keep that consistent. But in practition, when we're not in research, we can coach them to be better because we just want to know how good they can be at something. We don't need to measure A and B as such. We're always trying to better them. We're trying to improve. We don't need to measure A and B. Um, so I think that's kind of why, um, obviously, yes, the screen uses that, but I would, if for research purposes, or if you absolutely want to know how an intervention is affecting something between uh, pre and post intervention, then you do need to have that minimal sort of no coaching during and use exact same language, exact same demonstration. I show children how to do it. I gave them a technical demonstration of the movements so they got to see it. And that technical demonstration was always um, uh, the same from myself. And I always made sure, even though I had other people helping me do testing, I always did the movement um, screen. So it was always me delivering that. Um, I hope that's answered your question. Yes, yes, it has. And in terms of the logistics of testing, we were chatting off air about um, what testing might look like in uh, a private school setting uh, versus a state school setting. Um, do you just want to rip on that for a few minutes and chuck your thoughts in? Yeah, so obviously we've talked a lot about private and public. And, and I think actually for me, it's not private or public, it is PE or sport on this one and for me just just for testing purposes i don't really see the point of testing in physical education um and, and there'll be a lot of people saying what like what what is this and actually though this isn't a really a blanket statement everyone like everyone understand why it's because physical education without the gcsc without um offset trying to grade stuff just physical education if we're delivering SNC in physical education, I don't see the purposes of going in and doing speed gates. Um, I know a few primary schools who, or people have gone, oh, like, oh, I've got all this great equipment. I'm going to do jumps. I'm going to do speed gates. I'm going to do this, that, and the other. And it simply comes down to, well, if we don't have a control group, do we actually know how much influence we're having? So if I don't have a control group to, con to compare my testing and actually actually i need to clarify on this actually it depends whether it's a process or product assessment so if we use a product assessment that is uh sprint speed jump height which is the product of the test then i i don't see much place for it in younger children in physical education it serves a purpose in sport we need to know if we're getting these children faster and who's the fastest children it tells us a lot about the sport and what we need to coach it has a great place in that. That's not what I'm talking about. But in physical education, where sport's not the outcome and without the GCSE, et cetera, in its lower forms in year seven, eight, and nine or preschool, what is the? I don't understand why we would do speed testing and jump testing um, if it's a product assessment, because in a product assessment, we know it's all underpinned by maturation and anthropometrics. So as these children get older and their bones get longer, they're going to run faster. Or is it going to puberty, testosterone, et cetera? Sometimes it might be valuable in puberty because actually there's obviously divergences between boys and girls. 
But ultimately, I don't think it actually has much value to our programs because what we're measuring is just a change in maturation. We might amplify that change and we might have an effect on it, but we don't know what that effect is. So how can we say it drives our program in terms of what we're actually delivering? There may be a place for process orientated measures, so movement competency screens, et cetera, the, the test of gross motor development in preschool, or if you want to introduce the screens I've talked about, because process isn't as underpinned. Now, there is a change. And again, it's one of those papers that I've spoke about earlier. It looks at the changes between groups. I wish I could remember off the top of my head, but essentially, where it's not underpinned by physiology as much, the change isn't going to be as much because a process is all about the kinematics and the process of the assessment, so how they moved. And often it's graded against a set criteria for an optimal movement. So there's more space for that. But again, a lot of the things that are going to play into that is maturation. But we know from the research that we can have an influence on movement competency within four weeks. So if we use a movement competency screen, we can identify if we've had an increase on on what we're measuring essentially where i think if we looked at product speed jump etc i think the lines are a bit more blurred because maturation has such an influence uh, and, and growth has such a influence on those that i kind of think it's a little bit redundant in some ways but people could change my mind on that absolutely i may be wrong but that's where i sit with it at the moment I don't know if this question has uh, an easy answer. I'm guessing it probably doesn't. Um, but in the literature, have you come across any, um, I suppose, identifying the smallest worthwhile change? Um, because it's very easy to be like, oh, the program's working, they're jumping higher, sprinting faster. Look at their scores. They're up from last year. And you're like, well, yeah, they're, they're a year older, obviously. Um, is there anything in literature to state what that might be? Or is that completely dependent on the individual? There's, there's papers out there that look at sort of follow jump performance um, year on year through growth. So there's some general guidelines on, uh, excuse me, general guidelines on sort of how much at certain ages, how far they will be jumping. There are some papers out there. Um, and then on an individual le level, especially just towards getting towards maturation, like Sexual maturation is completely different between children. It's not non, it's not linear and it's highly variant. So, like while we go through that growth and maturation, there I wouldn't be able I wouldn't say there's like general prescriptions on how much will change their jump or how much because some some kids might grow more than others, their growth rates are different, their growth speeds are different, that the amount of fat mass they put on is different. It's a lot of genetics involved as well. So there are some general age, chronological age markers. But then when you look on an individual level, and obviously, especially around the time of maturation, those markers aren't the best indication to that individual, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. I figured it would be something like that. Um, and in terms of your coaching delivery, whether it's in PE or strength conditioning, um, you recently were part of a, a brilliant paper. Uh, I think it's titled Developing Motor Competencies in Youth. Um, but you talk about a games-based approach, but starting with the physical quality in mind. Um, do you want to just talk the listeners through, I suppose, how you reverse engineer developing these physical qualities, but in a game environment? Yeah, so I think there's been a big explosion of the games-based approach in physical education and in, uh, and in SNC. And 
and I'm a big advocate of it and I believe it's the right way to go and I guess if I was giving anyone advice or speaking to a younger version of myself it's just always have in mind what you're trying to get out of a game because a lot of games are just predominantly locomotor abilities if we just think about traditional games stuck in the mud tag all those games it's just locomotor abilities and sometimes like i said earlier move more than move better that has a place absolutely but if we're trying to target specific physical qualities we always need to think about in programming what is the physical quality i'm trying to improve and then figure out how am i going to improve that for a game because if we do a, if we make a game the game will then dictate what physical quality we can prove if we haven't, if we thought about the game first and then try to reverse engineer, that's always going to dictate what we do. But obviously as coaches, we program or we think about what we want to get out of a session. So if you've always put the physical quality first, you're dictating what you're getting out of your session. And then you just figure out how you get that into a game space approach. And then also that's how you can periodize the game space approach. Because if you've got the physical quality in mind, you can think about how much exposure to that physical quality, how much you want to progress it, regress it, whether you want to bring it in and out of the program. So that's how you can then periodize a game space approach. But if, if you use a game first and not the physical quality, it's very hard to periodize stuff in the mud. <laughs> like, um, but if you think about the physical quality first and how you get that into stuff in the mud, then you can periodize it as well. Brilliant. And as well as, I was just going to say as well, like hats off to John Radner and the rest of the team on that one. Uh, they were the real driving force on that paper. I was just lucky enough to be, in, be invited and hopefully drive the paper forward a little bit. Yeah, no, I love it. And I would highly recommend any teachers checking out. Um, I've uh, shamelessly done videos of my interpretations of uh, the animal patterns that you guys talk about just because I think the coaching cues and the easy nature that you could literally just be like right this is what I'm reading to the kids however this is from a physical perspective what I should see I think there needs to be more papers like that which actually influence next day practice um, I mean I could happily geek out on reading certain research papers but I think sometimes it's like actually the people who need to read this paper, no disrespect, might not have the scientific rigor to understand how it applies. Or then, as you said, the ability to think, right, well, I know these physical qualities like strength or whatever are important. How do I translate that into my P lesson on Monday with a bunch of rowdy year sevens or whatever the scenario is? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's papers out there I still really struggle to interpret so I completely agree and I think that's because I'm more of a coach at heart um so yeah I'm, I'm like I said John Radner and 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 um co-authors really drove that paper and had much more influence than I did um and it was yeah really I, I think it was really for the practitioners of minds strength and conditioning journal where it's published is for that that's what it is it's a practitioner based um journal so it had a great home there and in terms of uh, developing physical qualities through games uh, something that you've said which i think is completely spot on and dare i say one of my bugbears in physical education when we come on to uh, fitness lessons is what i think is a great idea of trying to gamify fitness but then losing the physical quality as a result of doing so. So for example, it might be um, something like uh, like 
uh, monopoly style fitness and it's like, oh, you've landed on old Kent Road, do 10 burpees to buy or, or something like that. Or something that involves racing through the movement and ignoring any movement quality. Uh, you've got quite a nice suggestion, which I like, which is kind of like a sports education model for physical education teachers where you talk about putting kids into teams and rewarding not just those who complete it quickest. Uh, if what I'm saying makes sense if uh, you want to just chat a little bit about that yeah i don't worry i know what example you're all about Ooh, um, yeah the team movement relays and stuff like that so and again this was pre-reflection because i got it wrong first you know i didn't think of this until i got it wrong and gone <laughs> i need to change this this doesn't look good um and and there's other people figuring this stuff out as well there's so many PE teachers and SC coaches have got this down um so yeah, so it's just changing. That's where the constraints I'd approach that because people think about physical constraints, but also what you say is a constraint. It, it constrains the game. It changes the outcome. So on that, I guess it was, so I was working in, and I think one of the things that really helps to make this work right is get children. So don't let children self-select teams because naturally the sporty kids tend to be friends. There's exceptions always, but they will tend to air together because they want to win. They're smart enough to figure it out. If I go with this group and we all stick together and it's a relay, we've got this. So random selection always helps and children have a bit of psychological resilience to random selection. They don't like it. They want to be with their friends, completely understand. So what you can do to set stuff up like that is have them come in straight away into a session go, right, you're working in pairs on a game. It might be a cone game or whatever it was. You're working in pairs, autonomy, supportive. They get to pick who they want to be with. So they, that's a little win for them. And then um, you might say, okay, join up with another pair because you now got work in, in, a, in a group of four for your next game. So what I was doing is actually getting them into groups of four through two different games. Once they're in a group of four, I said, right, now number yourselves one to four. So through two games, they've got to choose who they're with as a pair, then what other pair they went with. So we get a bit of autonomy, supportive behaviours. And then I split them because they didn't know that's what I was aiming for. So they didn't really think about, oh, I've been putting this group, this group, I don't want to number off. It was like one's over here, two's there, three, four, because I just said to them, number yourselves one and four. Then once they're in their groups, because of the random selection and actually four good children or four sporty children would have gone together, they've been split up. So it naturally made the groups um, evenly split. And then it was just sort of a case of, I, the first time I think I introduced this, like people were flying through the relay. Obviously I wanted them to do, they might they have to balance on a beam or they might have to perform overhead squats with a resistance band or any, any of the athletic medical competencies essentially. And I realized like first time I ever did it, I was like, oh no, God, I've got this wrong. The kids are flying off. Um, so as I reflected, like, that was an in-session reflection on the spot. I was like, I need to change this right now. And I said, like, okay, right. And what I did was I had a whiteboard with all their team names. I let them come up with names, build a bit of an emotional attachment to the game. I had a whiteboard and I said, right, okay, so this team came first. Now, now this time, I'm going to give 10 points to the team that I believe moved the best. And because they have some reference of what good movement was because I've been coaching them for four or five weeks on a lot of similar athletic muscle competencies. They knew if it was a squat, I want the hips to go to 90 or upright torso or like keeping the elbow straight. Those weren't maybe not the cues I gave them, but that, you know, they're thinking these things. So I said 10 points for the team that moves the best, five points for the team that comes back first. 
and then I'm going to throw in five points for the team that I or for I'll, for the team that I think worked the hardest. Because then they go, okay, we can get points for moving well and really focusing on everything that's taught us. And then there's, okay, there's an extra carrot of, okay, if we're not the best movers, we can still work really hard and get bonus points. And then there's the carrot of, well, all hell breaks loose, let's just go really fast. So <laughs> um, that's how I set that up. And, and that was a game changer for me because I'd invented an environment, uh, for what worked in my environment was I got this game space thing that was inclusive for uh, 30 kids. Um, and they were getting so many athletic motor skill competencies done, but properly under control. Like they were really focusing on their movement. And that was just so much great exposure for me. I was getting loads of athletic, athletic motor skill competencies and they were working really hard. And then I think we spoke about this as well. Like what we don't want in PE lessons is kids sitting down and waiting to go. So in their teams, while they were waiting to perform the relay, they all had a med ball and had to stand on one leg and throw the ball around between themselves. And if I shouted swap leg, they have to swap leg and keep throwing the ball around. So that just limited the sit down. I really don't like the sit down and wait to do stuff in, in PE lessons. It's while one person's doing the relay, the rest of you've got to work as a team. And then the carrot was, I'll take a point off if you drop the ball or I'll take a point off if I see you not throwing the ball. So they can't just get away with not doing it. They've got to throw the ball around. You get a single leg stability. You're getting it with an offset perturbation with a weight, et cetera. So those were the things I put in at the start just to add to the game. So that's that's how I kind of got movement competency through what typically would be more of a fast-paced locomotive game. And we shifted it to improving stabilizing skills, the athletic most skill competencies. Perfect. And it's one of those things where, again, I'm glad you've said you feel like you contradict yourself because I feel like I do it in each podcast. But with, for example, a sports-based model, what I would advise teachers to think about is certain sports lend themselves more to certain physical qualities than others. So how I've done it in the private school that I was based with was that, right, when you're on netball, that's basically a deceleration-themed, well, maybe not a lesson, but the warm-up's going to have a deceleration element in it. So, for example, uh, it might be your standard game of Bulldog, but there's like a stopping zone in the middle where the catchers can't get you, but you have to come to a complete stop. And you could easily say, right, next week, same thing, but I don't know, stop on one leg. Week three, jump and stop or whatever. Um, because actually you can use sports, but if you think that, I don't know, netball has to be 7v7, then you're already setting it up where the kid who's like an early mature and who's six foot whilst everyone else is five two is naturally going to dominate. They're not going to get stretched. And as long as you don't think, well, sport has to be exactly how it would be played in an after-school sports club, then I think actually there's nothing wrong with it. I think your what you've just described for me would make a perfect fitness lesson, but it just almost winds me up when we say like fitness, right? Bleak test and circuits. Yeah, I think that's just a perception thing as well. And I think the one thing um, I was taught at uni, I think it was Roger Lloyd who kind of mentioned it, or I think it's in one of his papers, and you kind of see it anyway, is that um, typically when on the curriculum, or especially in preschool or lower levels of, um, or even secondary school, um, typically when we've got a fitness lab lesson, physical education staff haven't had, haven't been taught about strength and conditioning. So naturally, you know, coaching people under load 
which is what we perceive as strength training is it's got to be a barbell weights, et cetera, et cetera. That's what they think it resistance training is. And that's how we get strength gains. It's quite scary to people. And, and, and obviously we have the myths that it stunts growth in children and, and it needs to be done in a safe environment, obviously. So teachers will never self-select strength training sessions unless they had a background in rugby or whatever it was. Some do, there's exceptions always. But naturally, aerobic training is the safe option. So I know if I get them to run around the field, I'm not going to be liable for Johnny going under a barbell and doing something really silly. So that's why we naturally select aerobic-based um, exercise and stuff in PE. And obviously that bias has um, is why we always think bleep tests and stuff like this, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the real well, things that's made me a little bit sad in the lockdown because we've obviously had to take sports away from children and, and then in physical education, um, children, they're going, okay, you do fitness based because you can spread them out. Okay. So I know a preschooler who I coach who came to one of my sessions. His mum's like, guy's really tired. He's just done like the bleep test or was it like the Cooper run or one of them silly 12 minute runs. All right, this guy's 10. Why have they done that? And I like, oh, because we're having to do fitness lessons because of the virus. We can't do sport. I'm like, yeah, that's, 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 and that's, it's no one's fault of their own, but that's where fitness naturally select aerobic exercises, but actually that's probably more damaging, like getting children just to run for 12 minutes. That's not building a love for sport, is it? That's that. And then, um, I guess that's where that gets lost a little bit in translation, but like, you know, I think it's just, just because physical education staff have to do so much pedagogy and et cetera, et cetera. Like we can't expect the world to know strength training. Um, and I think that's where we get, that's why we're seeing a lot of these tests typically in physical education. Yeah. And it is one of those, you can't criticize someone for something that they didn't know. And why would you go to actively seek out something if you've literally never heard of it? But um, I mm -hmm. said on another podcast, I think it would be awesome if, for example, the UKSCA, who again, no, don't have any affiliation to master's strength conditioning courses, but it'd be awesome to see a kind of um, exchange, if you will, whether it's a lecture, workshop, whatever, where, I don't know, primary school teachers go and spend a lesson with strength and conditioning coaches and they just bounce ideas off each other as to, right, here's the technical model. And then, I don't know, PE teachers or trainee PE teachers are like, oh, cool, maybe we could slide this into a game or maybe we could do it like this. And I just think it'd be massively helpful for both because... Uh, similar to yourself i can't remember if this was part of our on-air or off-air conversation um but we mentioned about coming into schools from snc environments and almost being eaten alive because you don't appreciate the logistics of group management kids always wanted to go with their friends and stuff like that um mm -hmm. so there's so many skills we could learn from them and that they could be teach or we could teach them and vice versa i don't know yeah i just to build on that point, um, when I delivered my interventions in schools or when I delivered in physical education, one of the, the main things I learned was uh, the intervention in the phys uh, part of my PhD, the, the PE teachers learned a lot from me in terms of how we can make this strength training look, how it looked in physical education. On the flip side of it, God, they saved me so many times on the behavioral and getting kids managed and stuff. And I learned so much from them on like the pedagogy and class control and behavior and 
and and that's why I feel that I'm a better coach and and how I know how to coach children better is because I I work with PE teachers and they're the, they're the, they're the best at it. They you know they do it every day with large cohorts. They and, and that's what a lot of their courses are geared about learning. And I think the most valuable thing from my coaching career working with youth was actually being almost mentored as such by a few phys- I've probably been mentored about four or five physical education teachers across my time span and that is invaluable that has been an absolute game changer I highly recommend any, anyone who wants to work in youth who's thinking about working with big classes or anything like that see if you can get some experience in physical education because the teachers are the best at it and that as an SNC coach they gave me some absolute gems on how to get classes sort of switched on getting them engaged or just little wins little things like one of the things was so like if you want to get all the kids in at the end of a session one of these teachers teachers just shout our oh, last one in the middle is a loser and they're like Vroom! <laughs> in the middle sat down listening and that was something he'd seen me struggle with to get everyone right they've been doing this game or etc etc get everyone back in to finish the lesson and he's just done something and just done it instantly or i, I think that's what he did but it you know, that was just a prime example of, okay, I've got that for life now. I know I can use that in lessons. That's a little gem. Yeah. And there's so many more of, so many more of them that you, as a strength and conditioning coach, almost, I suppose, sitting in your strength and conditioning suite or whatever, you, you never learn. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And uh, just in rounding up then, three key questions I ask everyone. Uh, so the first one is, uh, if you have one key take home for the listeners of this podcast, so maybe they're PE teachers, maybe they're strength conditioning coaches, um, or maybe they just work with young people, uh, what would you like that key take home to be? Uh, we haven't talked about it much. We talked about my facility a little bit to start with, but curiosity is key. I, I think I've, it's been a bit of a theme with my own coaching for a while now. Um, yeah, curiosity is key. If you can create an environment where children want to, climb on something which improves upper body strength or they want to jump and land from something we expose them to eccentric forces and 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 if you can create an environment where they're curious to just explore what you've set up for them and you get physical qualities out of them that's the winning formula for me i think and that's more so in a slightly younger cohort though um but i'd say that's my take home i don't move talk about it much but I, i think that's the big one for me yeah i like that i like that and uh, if you had a, I mean, I'd probably just recommend your gym, but uh, if you had one recommended resource for the listeners, um, what would that be? Again, it can be a book, a podcast, a workshop, whatever. Good question. Um, I guess for people working with youth, um, follow what sort of bit biased, but follow the Youth Physical Development Centre, what they're doing. Um, they get a bit more vocal on social media, but more like just the research outputs, like the last paper that came out that was mainly driven by John Radner. Um, there's a good collection of PhD students trying to do a lot of practical-based uh, um, PhDs or higher up, you know, John Oliver, Rodri Lloyd are all there and and some also po- awesome post um, postdocs as well. And um, I guess that's a resource, those books. Um, and then Craig Harrison's podcast as well. Um, and the Athletic Evolution podcast are both good for youth um, coaches. Um, there's some great ones on there. You know, you don't have to listen to them all. But what I tend to do with podcasts is set 
for example, I like the constraints I'd approach. So I'd go listen to those key authors who were on Craig Harrison's um, podcast. So I went and listened to the constraints approach or someone's using a similar philosophy. I'll go listen to that. It's a bit of a confirmation bias, but that's what podcasts are about, listening in the background and try to pick up some little gems from that. Absolutely. And yeah, they've been a godsend for me in terms of preparing and seeing the work that people put out there and then I suppose being able to ask questions that I would have had having listened to those podcasts. And I agree. Uh, Craig Harrison's podcast, love it. Um, Rob Anson had him on the podcast. Uh, his Athletic Evolution podcast is awesome as well. So some mm-hmm. solid recommendations there. And last one I like to end things on uh, is if you could go and observe one person, it could be a specific PE teacher, strength conditioning coach, maybe someone completely outside of the field of strength and conditioning, uh, who would you like to observe and why? Um, oh, that's, oh, put me on the spot. I mean, you're welcome to name a few. Does it have to be, does it, does it have to be now or could it have been someone in the past, you know, if I can oh, go back in time? Yeah, go back in time, why not? Um, I think if you look at, I guess, Sir Alex Ferguson, probably just because of the sheer amount of success he had as a, coach and there's a few documentaries on him like I'm not huge on football I'd say I'm a United fan but I'm not really like um, but he is probably just the best example of player management team management staff management and he had the recipe for success so he is probably if I could be a fly on the wall definitely him um, just because of his just unwavering success just over years and years. And I think in the documentaries about him, you obviously see that he was so engaged with everyone, whether it was the kitchen staff in the stadium or et cetera. He knew everyone's names. He was so involved. Um, so that's probably who I would pick to go be a fly on the wall via the time machine. Yeah, I think that's a great suggestion. I mean, uh, the headmistress at the private school that I worked at, her ability to remember names. I remember one time we were watching the school play hockey and a girl who was a former pupil she was then asking about this girl's sister who had gone to medical school or something ridiculous like that I was thinking that is unbelievable and uh yeah Fergie knowing everything about everyone probably half of the reason why he was so successful mm-hmm. yeah well, no, completely agree well, thank you very much for giving up so much of your time, Ben. And as I said, if anyone's listening to this, um, wants to check out your facility, where are you based at the moment? Or where is your address of your facility? Uh, so my facility is in Bristol. Um, I'm an open book. Um, anyone drop me a message, come on down. Um, for me personally, it's benefit because I like, the, you learn the most in conversations, right? You learn so much from other people. Everyone knows something you don't. So I love other coaches coming down and I'm almost, uh, sorry, always welcome to the idea of someone dropping in and helping coach um, because I would love to learn some new stuff off new people and hopefully I can offer something back as well. So, um, but yeah, thank you for having me on the podcast as well. Um, but yeah, based in Bristol, I'm in Portishead, which is just a little outside Bristol. But um, yeah, open book, anyone wants to drop down. And likewise, if anyone wants to invite me to their school environment so I can drop into their coaching, that'd be epic. So um, yeah, and, and again, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's been really, really good to talk. My absolute pleasure. Um, have you got a name for your gym at the moment or, or not? Yes, so yeah, this is the Youth Exercise Centre. Um, so 
socials will be launched very very shortly um and it's just just i didn't really want the name like academy or anything like that because I, i'm very about inclusivity trying to get it out to everyone children who aren't really involved in the sport in line but actually can fall in with stroke fall in love with stroke training or children who just like being physically active but don't really like sport or you know flip side kids who want to be olympic athletes i'm here to try help them on their journey so yes that's yeah the youth exercise center awesome thank you very much for your time ben cheers thank you very much thank you for listening to episode number 44 of the platform to perform podcast with today's guest ben pullin and myself as always todd davidson if you've enjoyed the podcast i'd love it if you could share it with a coach teacher or athlete that you think would benefit from listening to it It'd also be great if you could leave us a review via your preferred podcast platform so we can help grow the podcast and help educate more listeners. If you'd like to go one better than that, then you can support the podcast by heading over to my Patreon via www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P Coaching. In exchange for signing up, you'll have access to my exclusive and expanding movement library, which includes all of my calisthenics kids lessons designed to improve strength, confidence and movement skill in children as well as my list of animal shapes which were created off the back of the paper that we mentioned in today's podcast that Ben was involved in. You'll also receive access to all of the strength and conditioning programs I've released as well as all of my exclusive educational strength and conditioning content. Thank you very much for listening and I'll catch you again in the next episode.